The Federal Reserve has raised benchmark interest rates by another three-quarters of a percentage point and signals it may keep ratcheting up the rate as it looks to tamp down inflation. The impact of the latest hike coming up. Today is Wednesday, September 21st, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, New York Attorney General has filed a civil lawsuit against Donald Trump, accusing the former president of inflating his net worth by billions. The war in Ukraine is dominating this year's U.N. General Assembly. President Biden tells the United Nations that Russia's war in Ukraine should matter to all member states. If nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences, then we put at risk everything this very institution stands for. Also, St. Louis Cardinal on the cusp of doing something few in baseball have done hit 700 home runs. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden has more pointed words for Russian President Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state. Biden speaking today at the United Nations, hours after Putin's dramatic announcement to Russians. Putin is calling up 300,000 reservists to active duty in Ukraine, marking the largest mobilization since World War II. Putin is supporting a plan to annex more pro-Moscow areas of Ukraine. And on the heels of significant military losses in Ukraine, the Russian leader issued a thinly veiled nuclear threat as heard here through an interpreter. We will certainly use all the means available to us, and I'm not bluffing. Following Putin's speech, anti-government protests erupted. Hundreds of people reportedly were arrested. The New York Attorney General is suing former President Donald Trump. Several of his family members and associates also named in the civil suit, all accused of fraud. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports Trump is accused of manipulating the value of his properties to pay lower taxes and get better deals from banks. New York's Democratic Attorney General Letitia James announced a civil lawsuit against Trump following a three-year investigation. The suit also names his eldest children, Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr. James says Trump misrepresented the value of his assets more than 200 times over 10 years. Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system, thereby cheating all of us. James is asking a judge to issue $250 million in civil penalties and has referred the case to federal prosecutors for possible criminal charges. Donald Trump Jr. tweeted a response saying, this BS Dem witch hunt continues. Laura Benchoff, NPR News. The Fed's ordering another jumbo increase in borrowing costs. NPR's Scott Horsley reporting the central bank raised interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point today. By making it more expensive to use a credit card, buy a car, even ultimately get a mortgage, the central bank hopes to tamp down demand, which has been outpacing supply and pushing prices higher. The Fed has now raised interest rates five times since March, and policymakers signaled that additional rate hikes are likely. The effects of the Fed's moves are already visible in the housing market, which is particularly sensitive to borrowing costs. The average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage now tops 6 percent. Sales of existing homes have fallen in each of the last seven months, which can also reduce demand for things like furniture and appliances. The average sales price of existing homes dropped in both July and August. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Dow's down more than 500 points. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Energy costs may be going up for customers in Massachusetts this winter. National Grid is asking the state for permission to raise electricity rates by 64 percent beginning in November. That works out to an increase of more than $100 per month to the average bill. National Grid is also seeking a 22 percent hike in its natural gas rates. National Grid says the war in Ukraine is driving up the price of natural gas that powers many of its energy-generating plants. Eversource has also filed a request to raise natural gas rates between 25 and 38 percent. It has not yet filed a new electric rate request. Boston is tripling the number of municipal employees who are focused on trees. There will now be 16 instead of 5. It's an effort to expand tree coverage in the city. WBR's Martha Biebinger has more. Tree coverage varies widely in Boston. That means residents of Chinatown and East Boston are at greater risk for heat-related illnesses and flooding than are those in West Roxbury and Jamaica Plain. Mayor Michelle Wu says an urban forest plan out today and more staff will correct that tree gap. In the city of Boston, this is our best green technology to fight heat to make us resilient and to make our communities beautiful. In addition to the new jobs, Boston expects to spend $6 million this fiscal year on more trees, maintenance, and tree data for individual neighborhoods. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. The fight over lobster fishing rules intended to protect endangered right whales has entered a new stage in Maine. The Lobstermen's Association in that state said this week it is appealing a decision by a federal judge. That judge blocked the association's effort to overturn federal regulations and limit how and where lobster fishing can take place. Lobstermen call the regulations scientifically flawed and draconian. Scientists say right whales get caught in lobster fishing gear. In the forecast, 66 degrees. Now more clouds around overnight tonight. Maybe some rain dipping a few degrees to the low 60s. Tomorrow, overcast and wet thunderstorms and showers likely throughout the day. Temperatures in the low 70s. Sunny and cooler on Friday. 66 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession. With Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th, Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. New York Attorney General Letitia James is alleging in a civil suit that Donald Trump and three of his adult children engaged in a decade's worth of fraud, inflating Trump's net worth by billions of dollars. Pattern of fraud and deception that was used by Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization for their own financial benefit is astounding. Inflating the values of assets by whatever means necessary to increase Mr. Trump's purported net worth. James is seeking to permanently hobble Trump's ability to do business in New York, and she is asking for $250 million in damages. Joining us today to discuss that legal action is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Hi, Andrea. Hey, Juana. Great talking to you. You too. Okay. So what is James saying that um, Donald Trump and his adult children did? So the civil complaint, which runs to 222 pages, goes to the very heart of what makes Donald Trump Donald Trump. It contains over 200 examples of alleged fraud over the course of what the AG pointedly says is at least a decade. 
What's so striking about this action is that it describes persistent and repeated acts of fraud by the entire organization's top, top executives, all directed by Donald Trump. And it says he and his co-defendants misled his accountants, his bankers, his insurance companies, and cheated the public that he would repeatedly take official appraisals and then just make up a higher value. It says he did this with his commercial real estate, his residential real estate, his golf courses, dozens of different entities. Okay, let's dig a little deeper here. Can you give us an example of exactly how this worked? Yeah, so, so here are two. According to the AG, Donald Trump overstated the square footage of his own apartment at Trump Tower in New York by a factor of three. The Trump Organization valued it at $327 million, at the time the priciest apartment in Manhattan. And the AG heard testimony from Trump's former CFO that he knew it was off by a factor of $200 million. So here's a man who built this building, obviously Trump knows how big his penthouse is, but triples the size and uses that information to get favorable treatment from banks. Mm. Or take Mar-a-Lago. There are restrictions on how that property can be developed, which limit how much it's worth. The AG says $75 million. Trump says $739 million. Okay, big difference there. You know, it seems like we speak often on this show about Trump's legal troubles. So help us put this into context. How big of a deal is this lawsuit? Big. So it's not a criminal case, no one can go to jail. But it's the culmination of a three-year investigation and the devastating detail and persistence of the scheme outlined in the complaint alleges what is essentially a business model of fraud. Trump's business is currently a defendant in a criminal case in Manhattan. Trump has been sued literally thousands of times, including twice by the New York Attorney General, once for fraud at his foundation, once for fraud at his so-called university, and he's had to pay tens of millions of dollars in penalties to New York. But those cases compared to this one were about branches of his organization. This case is about the trunk of the tree. The AG is seeking a huge amount of money, $250 million, and other remedies that would all but prevent Donald Trump and Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr. from doing business in New York. And we should just note here that Trump's lawyer says this case is without merit. Trump and his family are calling it, quote, a witch hunt. So, Andrea, what sort of defense do we expect here? So we won't know until we see Trump's legal papers. And as we've seen in the Mar-a-Lago classified document investigation, there is daylight between what Trump says at rallies or on Truth Social and what his lawyers say in court. But we do know this. New York State Supreme Court Judge Arthur N. Gorin has repeatedly rejected the witch hunt defense in rulings on this very investigation. Letitia James, a Democrat, did run for office saying she would investigate Trump, but the judge said her statements and political views are irrelevant. What matters are the facts and the law. Okay, so um, this, this lawsuit has just been filed today. So tell us what happens next. So if past this prologue, the Trumps will draw it out. The case could settle, but it could go to trial. The AG has also referred the matter to the Justice Department and the IRS for possible criminal investigation. And the Manhattan DA, which chose not to indict Trump himself at a criminal juncture this year, says his criminal case is ongoing. All right, we're going to keep watching that. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Keep following that for us. Thank you so much. Will do. Thanks, Juana. Winter in Ukraine is freezing, and as summer turns to fall, Russian forces have targeted Ukraine's energy supply. The largest nuclear power plant in Ukraine has been under Russian occupation for months, and right now it isn't generating electricity for safety reasons. Russian shelling recently hit power and heating plants in several parts of Ukraine, including a missile attack near a different nuclear power plant. And many of Ukraine's coal mines in the east are under Russian control. 
All of this is in the portfolio of Ukraine's energy minister. German Galushchenko is in Pittsburgh right now for a clean energy conference, and that's where we have reached him. Minister Galushchenko, welcome to All Things Considered. Hello, sir. To begin with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the International Atomic Energy Agency has visited. The UN has issued its report. Yet last night, there was another attack on the plant. What's the current situation there? Yeah, you are right. This night, it was another attack on, on uh, Zaporizhia NPP. The Russian destroyed the line which supply electricity for use. And it makes to the result that the diesel generator start working for the six unit. And due to our staff, they managed to reconnect the six unit to, to the other units. And now the situation looks more safe. More safe for now. But long term, is Ukraine going to be able to produce nuclear energy to get you through the winter? Uh, of course, we are raising this issue of demilitarization of the nuclear station, especially we are talking about Zaporizhia. Because until the Russian soldiers are on, on this side, that is a great danger. And if Russia does not stop shelling, what is Ukraine doing to plan for what could be a very cold winter? Um, of course, we are looking for the possibilities to substitute this electricity in the system. But we have another three nuclear stations uh, in our system, and uh, they could provide electricity for the necessary level. By the way, two days ago, the Russians shell. Uh, another one station, which is South Ukrainian MPP. And uh, of course, we want to see the uh, our armies going ahead now, especially on the south. And uh, that is just help us to settle the issue of returning back to Ukraine, the Zaporizhia MPP. Given that there are these ongoing attacks on and near energy facilities, do you think Russia is actively trying to attack your energy grid and, and, and freeze people out? Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's what we see. And uh, uh, on September 11, it was massive attack on on energy infrastructure. So they destroyed uh, a number of facilities, and the thousands of Ukrainians were cut from supply of electricity. And it looks like uh, that is a strategy. I mean, but that is of course not something uh, similar to the war action. That's more close to the terrorism. The last six months have left many people with no glass in their windows. Windows have been bombed out all across Ukraine. And so as the temperatures drop below freezing and energy supplies are limited, how can you prevent people from dying of the cold? Of course, we we will do uh, everything to provide the necessary uh, electricity from the point of view of electricity and from the point of view of gas supply. Uh, the one, the, the most dangerous issue and the most risky issue for us, of course, that is the shellings. In case of the shellings, so we need to repair quickly and when they shell massively, of course, that takes time. If the Zaporizhia power plant is offline, if coal mines in the east are in control of Russia, how do you have the energy stockpiles to get through the winter? Uh, in fact, so we know how to substitute in this situation the Zaporizhia NPP uh, in our energy. So the mines which we lost in the east, they are not critical for uh, production of, of uh, the coal. And so today we, we understand how to manage to go through the winter. What is your biggest worry right now about the security of Ukraine's energy grid? Uh, the, one of the biggest worries, of course, the nuclear station. And, and that is, uh, I mean, that is not now only the question of 
possibility of the station to supply electricity to Ukrainian energy system. That is more now the situation when what I mentioned that the, when the diesel start operation. So this is more the question of uh, nuclear safety. And and uh, in case uh, I mean all these uh, Russian crazy actions around the Zaporizhia could could uh, have the results of a nuclear accident. And that's the situation when that would be not only Ukrainian problem. Mm. As I mentioned, you are at a clean energy conference in Pittsburgh with everything else that is raining down upon Ukraine right now. Tell me about your decision to take time to come to the United States and focus on renewable energy. Uh, that's that's a very important issue to uh, to raise. I mean, that uh, all this uh, dependence, uh, let's say, to to Russian energy, especially that's not only the, the case of Ukraine, that is the, the issue for Europe. And of course, there's Russia aim to make Europe addicted to, to its energy. And uh, the, the best solution to get rid of Russians on the energy sector is to, uh, to move to renewables. And, and that is the solution. German Galushchenko is Ukraine's Minister of Energy speaking with us from Pittsburgh today. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, California voters will see a pair of dueling moves to legalize sports betting in the state. Also, a St. Louis slugger eyes history. On Wall Street today, the Federal Reserve delivered another rate hike. Wall Street responded by heading downward. The Dow lost nearly one and three quarters percent, 522 points. It ended the day at 30,184. S&P and Nasdaq also lost about one and three quarters percent. S&P closed at 37.90. The Nasdaq finished at 11,220. Cambridge-based life sciences company is moving forward with plans for a gene editing treatment for a type of high cholesterol. Verve Therapeutics announced today the United Kingdom has approved a clinical trial for the treatment. It already has approval for a trial in New Zealand. Verve says its goal is to create a single-course treatment. It's 419. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing the glories of Bach. Immerse in Bach's masterworks, October 7th and 9th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. More clouds around tonight, maybe some rain, dipping a few degrees to the low 60s. Tomorrow, overcast and wet thunderstorms likely during the day, showers as well. Temperatures in the low 70s. Should be a nice day on Friday, sunny and cooler, right about 60. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, freeing up biotechs to focus on difficult diseases at state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities, labshares.com and the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more apply now for 2023. 
the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Banks saw an opportunity during COVID and permanently shut down 230 branches in Massachusetts. You can find that story and much more at WBUR.org. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The largest expansion of sports betting in America is on the ballot this November. California voters will see a pair of dueling initiatives to legalize it there. The campaign has sparked historic spending from tribal gaming groups and national betting companies. From member station KQED, Guy Marzarati reports. For months, it's been hard to watch TV in California without hearing about sports betting. California tribes like ours. To the homelessness groups overwhelmingly oppose Proposition 27. Written and funded by big out-of-state gambling. One ballot campaign is the most expensive in U.S. history. And together, supporters and opponents of the two props on the ballot have raised more than $400 million. California is poised to basically be the gold standard and the holy grail of U.S. sports betting markets. Daniel Wallach started the Sports Wagering and Integrity Program at the University of New Hampshire Law School. He says the record spending is an indication of how much both sides have to gain, as legalization could mean billions of dollars of wagers every month. But Propositions 26 and 27 offer two paths to a betting bonanza. What's at stake for Californians is a stark choice and contrast between two entirely different systems of sports wagering. Prop 26 is backed by the state's Native American tribal government. It would legalize sports betting at tribal casinos where other forms of gambling are already allowed. Jacob Mejia represents the Pechanga tribe in Southern California. If you think about where tribes are located, uh, they tend to be in rural areas, rural parts of the state that frankly need as much economic development as they can get. Mejia argues that tribes have been responsible stewards of slot machines and card tables and that rights for sports betting should be expanded to these communities with deep roots in the Golden State. California has been home to tribes for thousands and thousands of years. They aren't going anywhere. On the other hand, Prop 27 would legalize online betting, allowing Californians to wager on sports from their computer or phone. Prop 27 spokesman Nathan Click is quick to tout that the measure taxes betting revenue and earmarks that money for homeless services. To help build more housing, help finance more housing, help create mental health services that help get folks off the streets and into housing. But the companies bankrolling Prop 27, like betting giants DraftKings and FanDuel, see a potential gold mine in California. The campaign wouldn't make any of those companies available for an interview, but Peter Jackson, CEO of FanDuel's parent company, talks about opportunities for growth on a call with investors last month. Clearly, the big one is California. Look, it's worth fighting for the fifth largest economy in the world, but it's going to be a tough fight. And likely an uphill fight, with recent polling showing most voters oppose the online betting measure. 
The ballot fight is the result of years of gridlock on betting policy in the state legislature. In true California fashion, both sides decided to take the issue directly to voters. Timothy Fong, co-director of the UCLA Gambling Studies Program, argues there's reason to be wary of what's happened in the nearly three dozen states that have legalized sports gambling. We know that in states that have more sports betting, they have had more calls to the helplines regarding gambling problems. Many political analysts say the record spending on both propositions could end up turning voters off to both measures. One safe bet is that this issue is not going away in California, as another proposition to legalize sports betting could go before voters here again in 2024. For NPR News, I'm Guy Marzarati in San Jose. Home run milestones are the talk of Major League Baseball as the regular season winds down, and the St. Louis Cardinals' Albert Pujols is too shy of 700 career home runs. He has another crack at that tonight in San Diego, where last night NPR's Tom Goldman joined a watch party. Want to get on Albert Pujols' bad side? Mention to him he's chasing 700 career home runs. A reporter did that yesterday pregame in the St. Louis Cardinals dugout. I'm not chasing anything, buddy. That's something that you guys are playing with. I, I just never chased any numbers, and I accomplished so much. So 22 years later, I definitely don't want to chase anything. Actually, Pujols uses that odious word when it comes to chasing another World Series title. He helped St. Louis win championships in 2006 and 11, and he wants another before he retires after this season and ends a two-decade-plus career that will easily land him in the Hall of Fame. That ending always was going to be a fond but fairly sedate affair, with teams on the road honoring Pujols. The San Diego Padres did last night with a very San Diego gift for him and fellow retiree-to-be, St. Louis catcher Yadier Molina. The Padres are presenting these two legends with surfboards. But Pujols has turned an easygoing retirement tour into something electric, thanks to a home run barrage that ignited a somewhat sleepy final season. He's hit a dozen since last month, and it's prompted reporters to call it a power surge, which, again, he doesn't like. My power surge. Okay, I guess I didn't have any power. I had to search for some, so did it took this long? I don't know why, but for me it was just try to really repeat the same swing that I've been doing for 21 years in my career. Pujols does acknowledge his swing speed is better now than years past. He's also been feasting on left-handed pitchers. According to MLB.com, lefties have given up nine of Pujols' last 12 homers. Last night, the Padres offered up only right-handed pitchers. They held Pujols to two singles and this walk that drew boos from the homer-hungry fans. Alas, there'd be no lucky ones in the bleachers catching a Pujols home run. But high above the first baseline, 36-year-old San Diegan Chris Woldridge found himself perfectly positioned to snag the closest thing to history last night, an Albert Pujols foul ball. I just saw it pop up and it looked like it was coming right at me and it was just so perfect. I didn't have to move or anything. And Woldridge said he hadn't been to a major league game in maybe 15 years. He'll remember this one and a chance souvenir from a 42-year-old player finishing with a bang. It's impressive. I, I mean, you know, you're not supposed to be, you know, hitting as many home runs and playing at that caliber at that age. It's just really, it's really special. 
there was a time not too long ago when a home run barrage by a 42-year-old would raise questions, not unreasonable questions to ask in San Diego, where Padres star Fernando Tatis Jr. currently is serving a lengthy suspension after testing positive for a performance-enhancing drug. There have been no credible allegations against Pujols, nor has he had the outlier performances. He never hit 50 home runs in a season. His major league career began in 2001 during the so-called steroid era, but he's played most of his baseball since the game's become a standard bearer in the fight against sports doping. Travis Tigert is the CEO of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. The light switch went on in baseball and they put in a policy that protects clean athletes. Unencumbered by suspicion, San Diego fans cheered all four of Pujols' at-bats last night. Many stood with cell phones recording hoped-for history. It didn't happen, but fans on the road, and certainly in St. Louis, will keep turning out to watch one of baseball's great late-season chases, or whatever Albert Pujols wants us to call it. Tom Goldman, NPR News, San Diego. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up as part of our Makers series, we introduce you to an urban planner and artist who's on a quest to make everyone feel welcome in Boston's parks, despite the city's history of racism. Also, Medford-born jazz drummer Terry Lynn Carrington. Should be partly mostly cloudy tonight, about 62 degrees for tomorrow. Thunderstorms likely, highs about the low 70s. Right now, 66 degrees in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. The southwestern United States is one of the fastest growing regions in the country, but it's also experiencing the worst drought in 1,200 years, and people are starting to feel the pinch. Say, honey, you're building this house, but do you know on January 1st, we don't have a water source for you right now, right? A trip to Arizona where climate change is hitting home. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. As widely anticipated, the Federal Reserve today delivered another supersized interest rate hike to curb consumer demand and bring inflation under control. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell also warned that there will be more rate increases to come. Today, the FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three-quarters of a percentage point, and we anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. We are moving our policy stance purposefully to a level that will be sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2%. Right now, the annual inflation rate, actually in August, was 8.3%. Today's increase follows similar rate hikes in June and July. The Fed is raising rates to fight the worst inflation in 40 years, but the underlying concern is that the increases may cause a recession by slowing the economy too much. 
Meanwhile, higher mortgage rates are now clearly pushing home prices down from their peak back in June as the pace of home sales fell, fell for the seventh straight month. NPR's Chris Arnold tells us home prices saw their biggest drop in nine years. Home prices over the past two months fell 6%. That's a lot. It's been nearly a decade since we saw a two-month decline that big. That's not to say we're in a housing crash. People can afford their loans, and prices are still up 8% from a year ago. But mortgage rates rising from around 3% to up above 6% in recent months, that's definitely now cooling off home prices. That magnitude of the mortgage rate increase uh, is one of the largest quickest uh, increase in such a short span of time. Lawrence Yoon is the chief economist of the National Association of Realtors. He says, though, homes on the market are still selling very quickly and a shortage of homes for sale should keep prices from falling really dramatically. Chris Arnold, NPR News. Stocks finish sharply lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Workers at a Commonwealth Avenue Boston Starbucks say they have ended their strike. The two-month-long picket is believed to be the longest in Starbucks history. In a statement, unionized workers say the company has agreed to revisit its scheduling policies for workers at that location. Starbucks says it looks forward to scheduling collective bargaining sessions with the unionized workers. National Grid customers are likely to pay a lot more to heat their homes this winter. The utility filed plans today with state regulators to boost electricity rates by 64 percent, or about $114 a month. The company says natural gas bills will be about $50 more each month. National Grid's Helen Burt points to one thing in particular for higher energy prices. We procure electricity on behalf of our Massachusetts electric customers, typically about 50 percent in March and about 50 percent in September. In March, supply costs skyrocketed due to the conflict in the Ukraine. If they are approved, the rate increases are set to go into effect in November 1st. Eversource has also found a request to raise natural gas rates between 25 and 38 percent. It has not yet filed a new electric rate request. A Cambridge-based science advisory group says Russia's war against Ukraine could be pushing the world closer to nuclear catastrophe. Russian President Vladimir Putin said this week he will use everything at his disposal to protect Russian territory. Tara Drostenko is with the Union of Concerned Scientists. She says Putin's renewed threats to use nuclear weapons are consistent with his rhetoric since the start of the war. Look, if there were a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia that escalated to full scale, it would be a civilization-ending event. And so I think all of us need to be concerned about this. Drostenko says the war in Ukraine is the most significant event having to do with nuclear weapons since the fall of the Soviet Union. Puerto Rico is beginning the cleanup after Hurricane Fiona devastated much of the island, and members of the Puerto Rican community in Massachusetts are rallying to help. WBY's Sydney Bowles has more. State Senator Adam Gomez tells Radio Boston he's speaking regularly with people in Puerto Rico, including elected officials. He points out that Fiona hit five years to the day after Hurricane Maria devastated the island in 2017. Bridges that were rebuilt and infrastructure that was rebuilt after Maria has been put in a position that we, that it's gone again. Gomez is the first Puerto Rican elected to the Massachusetts Senate. He says the diaspora is ready to help, even as community members process this latest trauma. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. 66 degrees in Boston. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon. snhu.edu.
Should be partly to mostly cloudy overnight tonight. Some gusty winds around. The chance of showers right about 62 for a low. Not too much lower than it is right now. Tomorrow, lots of wet. Showers and thunderstorms, gusty winds, temperatures in the mid-70s. Things should clear out for Friday as the sunshine returns. Temperatures dip to about 60 degrees. 66 now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 436. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Clavio, seeking to help e-commerce brands build customer relationships and drive revenue through email and SMS. Learn more at K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The war in Ukraine is dominating headlines at this year's United Nations General Assembly. Russia announced today that it's calling up more troops to fight in Ukraine. And President Biden says this war undermines the core tenets of the UN. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple. And Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should not, that should make your blood run cold. NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman is at UN headquarters in New York. And Michelle, tell us what else President Biden had to say about the war in Ukraine. So he really um, tried to paint this war in terms that he hopes will resonate with a lot of member states. He said there have to be consequences for countries that launch wars to pursue their imperial ambitions. Those were his words. And if not, the whole U.N. system is under threat. So it was really a pitch to those U.N. General Assembly uh, members who have tried to stay neutral in this conflict. And the French president, Emmanuel Macron, has made a similar appeal in his speech, as have other world leaders. Uh, Biden touched on a range of issues from China to climate change. What stood out to you? Yeah, he was tough on China on its treatment of the Uyghurs and what he calls China's concerning nuclear buildup. But again, he tried to reassure the world body that the U.S. is not seeking a Cold War and that the U.S. is focused on issues that many countries really care about. So it's climate change, food security, energy security, combating the COVID-19 pandemic and other health issues. That was sort of his pitch to what's known as as the, the global South, Africa and Latin America and much of Asia, countries that are kind of worried about the U.S. competition with Russia and China and what it means for them. Russian President Vladimir Putin is not at the U.N. General Assembly, but his foreign minister is. Uh, Is anyone talking about diplomacy there? Well, U.S. officials say it's not business as usual, and they're not talking to um, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov or have no plans to. But Lavrov's spokesperson has been posting lots of pictures on social media about his meetings to show it is kind of business as usual for them, despite the cold shoulder from the U.S., And, you know, Ari, over the years, I've noticed that the U.S. always tries to shame Russia into behaving better, and it never seems to work. Russia is facing a lot of criticism here, especially from Europeans who are really worried about Putin's nuclear saber rattling. But others are leery about the U.S. approach of pouring weapons into Ukraine, and they really want to see some sort of peace talks. Um, That seems far, far off. 
But the International Atomic Energy Agency chief did meet with the Russian and Ukrainian foreign ministers today, separately, at least to talk about safeguarding nuclear plants. Also, Iran's president made his in-person debut at the UN General Assembly. Anything surprising there? Well, he actually spoke a lot longer than Biden did, so Ibrahim Raisi had a lot to say, and he painted a very different picture of the world, saying the U.S.-led world order has failed. He complained about criminal sanctions. He brought up the U.S. assassination of an Iranian general and said former President Trump should be tried for that. And he complained about double standard on human rights. Um, that may play well in some quarters, but Ibrahim Raisi is facing protests both here and at home about the uh, over the death of a young woman who was allegedly beaten by morality police for not wearing a proper hijab. It's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Apartments and houses are in ruins in the towns that Ukrainian forces have liberated from their short Russian occupation. Gas and electrical lines are in tatters. Grocery stores are empty. And while many people fled if they could, there are also Ukrainian civilians who remained behind. And they are now describing what they saw. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from the Kharkiv region of eastern Ukraine. The town of Kozacha-Lapanya used to be the last railway stop in Ukraine before trains from Kharkiv crossed into Russia. Passengers could exchange Rivna for rubles, grab a cup of coffee, stretch their legs. Now the Ukrainian customs post is blown apart. The high-ceiling train station is pockmarked with bullet holes. The steel tracks in front of the platform are twisted from explosions. Ukrainian police claim they found a torture chamber in the basement of the station where Russians interrogated local residents. Resident Luda Tryanek says one local man was held for several days simply for trying to cross into Ukrainian-controlled territory to visit his hospitalized mother. And she says she saw him when he was released. He lifted up his shirt and his back was black and blue with bruises. He was beaten there for nothing. The 58-year-old Tryanek says one day she saw her own son being marched to the train station by three soldiers with guns. It was very cold. It was April. It was windy. It was raining. And I sat waiting on the train platform in just light clothes. She says she waited shivering for two hours outside the station before they let her son go. At first, he told her that he was just questioned about some looting. He said they made him sit on a chair with his hands tied with tape and a hood on his head. Later at night, when he screamed because of the nightmares, then I realized that he didn't want to upset me, and he didn't tell me that he was beaten. Kozacha Lapanya was one of the first places Russian forces invaded when they launched their offensive against Ukraine in February. Moscow held the border town until Ukrainian troops retook it on September 11th. Many of the 4,000 residents fled either to Ukrainian-held territory or to Russia. Toryanik says she stayed in part because she'd agreed to look after her neighbor's cats, dogs, flocks of chickens and geese. She says she couldn't abandon them. Toryanik also planted flowers to make it clear that she had no intention of leaving. The fighting left the main street in ruins. Buildings burnt, the post office with its doors and windows blown out, and the grocery stores destroyed. Residents lived off food from their gardens and food packets handed out by the Russians. We meet Kirill Krasnikov, a Ukrainian volunteer who's passing out bread, water, and bags of pasta from the back of a small hatchback. He says the needs here are huge. Medical supplies, water, gas. 
By gas, he means they need piped gas for heating and cooking. He adds they also need generators or some other way to get electricity. Because now in this village, they don't have electricity at all. So it's a very big problem. Residents still have very limited access to information as the Russian-aligned forces shut down the Ukrainian cell phone and internet connections. And the conditions in many other parts of Ukraine that were under Russian control are similar. Further south, in the city of Izum, where investigators are exhuming hundreds of bodies from a burial site in a forest, people are living in high-rise apartment buildings without any windows. All the glass was blown out by explosions. Residents are cooking over open wood fires. Some people say they're concerned about facing the oncoming winter without gas heat. But the determined Ludatorianic backing Kozachilapanya isn't worried. She can get by this year, she says defiantly to me and my interpreter, without gas or electricity. We live with candles, but we will live in our land with our authorities, with the Ukrainian. And we will rebuild everything. It's not a big problem. We will rebuild, restore everything, but we will stay here. Carrying two bags of groceries that she just got from the volunteers, Toryanik heads back across the railway tracks to her house, her flowers, and all of her neighbor's animals. Jason Bobien, NPR News, Kozachilapanya, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, two local artists, one focused on opening city parks to those who may not have felt welcome there, the other who's unearthed works by female composers who haven't always felt welcomed in the world of jazz. Those stories just ahead. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy. WBUR's fall fundraiser begins tomorrow morning at 7 with just an hour of fundraising for the entire day. We call it a power hour. Squeezing a whole day of fundraising into an hour gives you more of your favorite programs. We need 500 contributions by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning to make this power hour a success. Help us off to a strong start. Give now at WBUR.org. If you hear military jets overhead today, it's likely part of a drill. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, says F-15s and other Air Force jets are flying over eastern Mass, New Hampshire, Maine, and southern Quebec today. The exercise is part of an effort to bolster U.S. air defense. Partly to mostly cloudy overnight tonight, some gusty winds could have showers, just about 62 degrees for a low. And for tomorrow, overcast and rainy, some thunderstorms during the day in the low 70s. For Friday, should be beautiful. Beautiful, a lot drier and a lot sunnier. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at mparchitectsboston.com. And Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmers market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmerstoyou.com slash WBUR. Regional Federal Reserve banks don't get quite as much attention as they used to. Some economists have basically blamed the Great Depression on the fact that these regional banks had a lot of power. I'm Kai Rizdal, the then and the now of the Federal Reserve, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston is home to more than 200 city parks. They make up a public resource everyone can share. But not everyone feels at home in the city's green spaces. In our series featuring local artists of color, we introduce you to an urban planner and artist who wants everyone to feel welcome in Boston's parks. The idea is to host public programs inspired by the writer James Baldwin. WBUR's Amelia Mason has more. I meet Anita Morrison-Matra at the Rose Kennedy Greenway in downtown Boston on an intensely sunny summer day. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this freaking beautiful? We're standing next to a pristine lawn bordered by lush shrubbery. A wide stone path cuts through it. Even with all of the background sounds um, that you often find in major cities, it is a place of refuge and healing. And, Morrison Matra um, believes in the power of green spaces to heal. But she says not everyone feels that these public spaces are really for them. If someone was to come out on any general day, they would think that this may just be for tourists or this may just be for a certain population of people, but it's not. It's for everyone. This year, Morrison Matra was awarded a grant from the New England Foundation for the Arts to develop an event series to take place in Boston's parks inspired by the 20th century author and civil rights activist James Baldwin. It's called Baldwin in the Park. Which will be a series of theatrical performances and opportunities for us to engage with Baldwin's work. Why Baldwin? Morrison Matra points to the writer's own search for refuge, which in 1948 led him to flee the racism of New York City for the freer, more bohemian Paris. Having to leave where you are, you know, the place that you've loved, Harlem, and go to Europe is something that has felt really close to me, like just having to move and leave in order to be who you are fully. Morrison Matra notes what she calls the challenging and painful histories that black and brown people have had throughout Boston, and points out that there are locations in the city where enslaved people were sold. Because of that history of pain, there's an opportunity to create new relationships with these outdoor spaces, um, ones that can be nourishing and nurturing and, and can be filling and loving. In October, Morrison Matar will present a kind of preview of her Baldwin in the Park series on the Greenway. She says the interactive event will use dance and movement to help participants connect with outdoor spaces wherever they find themselves. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. Amelia's story is part of our week-long series, The Makers, that highlights Boston-area artists of color. Tomorrow on WBR's Morning Edition, we'll meet podcaster Harley Takagi Kaner. To see photos and videos of all the artists we featured, visit WBUR.org. In 2018, jazz drummer Terry Lynn Carrington founded the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. The question at the heart of the program is, what would jazz sound like in a culture without patriarchy? And for its opening celebration, Carrington asked two students to play some live music. And when they said, well, what do you want us to play? I said, I'll just pick some standards or some tunes written by women. And they called me back and said, we can't find any. Carrington students had been looking in The Real Book, a collection of sheet music which for decades has been the authority on which jazz songs are standards or classics. And to this day, The Real Book is dominated by the work of men. So immediately I realized 
This is a sign that I'm doing the right thing, first of all, by starting the Institute. And second of all, this will become our first initiative. An initiative to correct the record and create an alternative to the real book that would highlight the work of women in jazz. Now, four years later, Carrington's done it. She's out with a book of 101 compositions by women, spanning the last century of jazz. She and other artists also recorded a batch of them for a new album. It's called New Standards. As you were putting this collection together, were there some tracks that you immediately knew? They just had to be a part of this. There were a few people that I knew I wanted to include. One was Abby Lincoln, and she has so many amazing songs. Uh, But I chose Throw It Away, and it's one of her classic songs and one that people know. I think about the life I live, a figure made of clay. And I tried to pick 11 songs for the album that showed the variety of jazz styles that are in the book. And I wanted to make sure there were songs people recognized as well as obscure songs. Give us an example of one of those obscure songs, something that perhaps had really been left behind and forgotten that you felt was important. Well, there's a composer, her name is Sarah Cassie, who was from Detroit and lived in New York. And she was a jazz composer and was uh, really kind of well-known a bit back in the day. A lot of people recorded her music, but, you know, it's not that, that they were hit records or anything like that, so I don't think a lot of people today know who she is. So we have one of her songs called Windflower in the book and on the album. As I think about this project, to me at least, it feels like you are revisiting and in many ways refreshing some of the ways that the history of jazz has been told and you're inviting people to come along with you and to see it and to hear it from a new perspective. I'd love to know for you, how would you describe your goal? Well, I think, you know, my story is such that I was pretty celebrated at a very young age and grew up in the music, feeling like an exception. And it wasn't really until the last 10 years or so that I figured out that that's not cool. It's not cool to be an exception. And what about everybody else? And of course, there are a few women that have come through and are widely recognized, but there are a lot more that aren't, and more importantly, a lot more that have the potential and had the potential that was never realized. So the overall goal is to change the culture, to say that these women have always existed and there's a lot more coming and we need to uh, pay attention. You said that you grew up feeling like an exception in the music world, but that in the span of about 10 years, you came to a realization that that wasn't necessarily a good thing. What happened in the intervening 10 years to lead you to where you are now? Well. I've been teaching at Berkeley for about 16 years now, and one day I had a meeting with the Women in Jazz Collective, and they started telling me their stories, and it really hit me in a different way this time. 
uh, you know, maybe because I'm older, maybe because I got a lot closer to uh, this generation through teaching. And I said, well, let me just create a space here at the college uh, where they can come and not worry about these extra burdens that women often face trying to learn how to play jazz. And what, if I can ask Terry, what were those extra burdens? Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, there's so many extra burdens that women have to deal with uh, compared to their male counterparts. Um, how you look on stage, people hitting on you, people not giving you solos, like band directors in middle school and high school, they, looking at you to play you know, a functional role as a horn player in a, in a big band, but not helping you develop as an improviser. Just people coming up to you at a show uh, before you play asking if you're the girlfriend of the band or, or waitress in the club or, you know, all of these extra things that, you know, make you feel sometimes like you're not supposed to be there. And it strikes me that you were talking about formative painful experiences that are happening in many cases at a young age. What do you see in them and this next generation of rising jazz stars? Well, that's the great part about teaching because you realize that you're teaching future teachers, even if they don't know it yet. You know, a lot of people want to be performers and end up teaching. Most of us end up teaching in some way or another. So with that in mind, you know, we're trying to help you know, shape the future differently uh, with a different kind of consciousness around not just gender equity, but, you know, racial justice and ableism and environmental justice and animal justice. All of these things are connected. So we're trying to teach the whole student. And one thing that I'm very excited about is the young men of this generation seem to be rejecting this kind of jazz bro culture. That's the slang that the students use. But um, yeah, they're rejecting that and they're rejecting hyper-masculinity. And so they're drawn to our institute because they can just be themselves without having to fit into this in a more stereotypical way. Terry Lynn Carrington, Grammy-winning drummer and composer. Her new album and book of jazz compositions is called New Standards. Terry, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. 
committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. More at nature.org slash solutions. This is 90.9 WBUR. Look for increasing clouds overnight tonight, some clear patches in the sky, chance of showers by daybreak tomorrow, lows in the low 60s. Tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms for much of the day, highs in the low 70s once again. Then for Friday, should turn dry and bright, sunshine, cooler temperatures reaching just about 60 degrees. For Saturday, should be mostly sunny, highs in the upper 60s. Looks like a nice sunny day, at least from this vantage point on Sunday. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 459. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Federal Reserve orders another boost in interest rates today as it tries to curb demand and tamp down inflation. High inflation imposes significant hardship as it erodes purchasing power, especially for those least able to meet the higher costs of essentials like food, housing, and transportation. It's Wednesday, September 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Why this rate hike will likely be followed closely by more. Hurricane Fiona left so much rain in Puerto Rico that its network of rivers is swamped. We'll hear how the damage was exacerbated by poor planning and development. Vladimir Putin says Russia will mobilize up to 300,000 additional troops to fight in Ukraine. Moscow appears poised to annex the Ukrainian territory it now controls. Also, you can go to the Golden Arches in the capital of Ukraine once again. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is calling on world leaders to step up their condemnation of the war in Ukraine. Speaking before the United Nations General Assembly today, the president accused Russia of attempting to erase the sovereign state from the map. Here's NPR's Windsor Johnston. President Biden accused Russia of shamelessly violating the core tenets of the United Nations Charter, adding that Ukraine has the same rights that belong to every sovereign nation. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple, and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Biden directly placed the blame for the global food crisis on Russia, accusing Moscow of pumping out lies about Western sanctions amid the invasion of Ukraine. The president also announced nearly $3 billion in U.S. support for humanitarian and food assistance. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. The Senate Judiciary Committee is considering the nomination of a longtime abortion rights lawyer to serve on a federal appeals court. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports. Julie Rickleman immigrated to the U.S. from the former Soviet Union with her family in 1979. Rickleman went on to argue the Dobbs case before the U.S. Supreme Court. In June, the court used that case to overturn landmark abortion rights precedent in Roe v. Wade. Rickleman says if she's confirmed as a judge on the First Circuit Court of Appeals, she will follow Supreme Court precedent on abortion and other issues. 
She told senators her experience fleeing communism and anti-Semitism as a child instilled in her the importance of the rule of law. She says she understands the difference between being an advocate and being a judge. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. New York Attorney General Letitia James today announced a major civil fraud lawsuit against former President Trump, accusing Trump's company of lying to lenders and insurers for more than a decade about the value of his assets. James is seeking $250 million in financial penalties in the case. Stocks sank after the Federal Reserve hiked interest rates by another three-quarters of a percent. Here's NPR's David Gura. Trading was volatile, with markets gaining ground during Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell's news conference after the central bank announced the interest rate increase, but then turning about half an hour before the closing bell. All three indexes ended the day down by more than a percent each. In his remarks, Powell emphasized over and over again the Fed's commitment to getting inflation under control. It hasn't raised rates this aggressively in decades. Wall Street fears the rate increases will lead to a recession. The Fed chair said there is, quote, a high likelihood that we will have a period of below-trend growth. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow was down 522 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Police Department says it arrested 10 people this morning when climate change protesters tried to block and in one case did block roadways in the city. The arrests are in addition to five made by state police during the protests. Some of the protesters occupied part of Seaport Boulevard in the Seaport District and forced part of the roadway to close during the morning commute. The Suffolk County District Attorney's Office says it has not yet made a decision about whether to charge the people who were arrested. A member of a Massachusetts-based search and rescue team is now in Puerto Rico to help residents there affected by Hurricane Fiona. The member of Massachusetts Task Force One joins 29 counterparts from other states to assist local teams with whatever they need. Program manager Jay Moultonbray of the Beverly-based team says his task force member will serve as a liaison officer. He would go into a local emergency operations center and meet with the the local uh, authorities, and he would be the conduit to get uh, requests back to the leadership uh, if there was a mission and whether or not we could meet that mission or provide uh, support for the locals. Task Force One has previously been deployed to respond to other hurricanes and to the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. Uh, State transportation officials say they're pleased with the progress being made to repair the aging Sumner Tunnel in Boston. The 87-year-old structure connects East Boston with downtown. It's been closed every weekend for about three months for the upgrades, and that will be the case through spring. Jonathan Gulliver is the state's highway commissioner. For the most part, this project has been going very well. Traffic has settled in, which which is uh, something that we expected, that after a couple of weekends, people would get used to this being closed. They understand where they need to go to avoid uh, the closure and get to where they need to go efficiently. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the state has erased closure-related traffic with a dedicated lane for drivers who leave Logan Airport bound for the nearby Ted Williams Tunnel. In the forecast, lots of clouds around tonight. Maybe some rain dipping a few degrees to the low 60s. For tomorrow, overcast and wet. Gray throughout the day. Temperatures in the low 70s could have some soaking rains tomorrow, then sunny and cooler on Friday. This is WBUR. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. And Clavio, seeking to help e-commerce brands build customer relationships and drive revenue through email and SMS. Learn more at klaviyo.com slash NPR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Federal Reserve is making it more expensive to buy a car, get a mortgage, or use a credit card. And the central bank ordered another big increase in interest rates this afternoon as it tries to control stubbornly high inflation. The Fed boosted its benchmark rate by three quarters of a percentage point and signaled that additional rate hikes are likely in the months to come. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Juana. So this was the Fed's fifth rate hike in six months. Scott, what's going on here? What's going on is inflation's still really high, and the Fed has concluded that it's going to take some strong medicine to get prices under control. You know, the annual inflation rate in August was 8.3%, down only a little bit from the month before. And Fed Chairman Jerome Powell told reporters this afternoon he and his colleagues are acutely aware of what a hardship these rising prices are, especially for the people who can least afford it. If your family is one where you spend most of your paycheck on gas, food, transportation, clothing, basics of life, and prices go up the way they've been going up, you're in trouble right away. You you don't have a cushion. This is very painful for people at the lower end of the income and wealth spectrum. So the Fed is determined to get inflation down, and the way it does that is by making credit more expensive. The idea is that if it costs more to borrow money, people will buy less. Uh, That, in turn, will bring demand back into balance with supply, and prices will stop going up so fast. And, Scott, it sounds like the Fed is not finished with rate hikes yet. What do we know about what could be to come? Interest rates have already risen by three percentage points this year, and the Fed looks poised to tack on another one to one and a quarter points by the end of the year. Uh, That's a substantially bigger jump in borrowing costs than policymakers were predicting back in June. And that's because so far, inflation has not really responded and cooled off as much as the central bank had hoped. This is the most aggressive string of rate hikes we've seen since the early 1980s, when then-Fed Chairman Paul Volcker took really draconian steps to control inflation after double-digit price hikes in the 1970s. The Fed say they're prepared to push the brakes as hard as they need to to get prices under control. But Scott, what effect is that having on the broader economy? It's definitely slowing things down. Uh, one place you can see that is the housing market, which is especially sensitive to borrowing costs. You know, Mortgage rates have now topped 6%, more than double what they were a year ago. That's put houses out of reach for some people. Sales of existing homes have fallen now for seven consecutive months, and the average price of those houses has dropped almost 6% over just the last two months. More broadly, Fed policymakers have sharply lowered their forecast for economic growth this year. They think GDP is moving just above stall speed. Powell acknowledged the slowdown could be painful, but he says letting inflation go unchecked would be even worse. No one knows whether this process will lead to a recession, or if so, how significant that recession would be. Nonetheless, we're committed to getting inflation back down to 2%. Now, the stock market is not sure what to make of all this. Stocks fell when the rate hike was first announced this afternoon, then rallied as the Fed chairman was talking, and then fell again. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average ended the day down more than 500 points. So, Scott, it looks like people are bracing for an economic slowdown. What does that mean, though, for workers? It could mean job cuts. That's typically what happens when the Fed takes action like this. But it's certainly not evident yet. So far, the job market has been remarkably resilient, even as some other economic indicators have been flashing warning signs. Unemployment's just 3.7 percent, close to a 50-year low. Uh, Businesses have been adding hundreds of thousands of jobs every month. 
But as interest rates go up and if demand goes down, it's possible we could see some layoffs. Fed policymakers are forecasting somewhat higher unemployment both next year and the year after. Uh, but we could get lucky. You know, Fed Governor Chris Waller has suggested that even if there is an economic downturn, employers have had so much trouble finding workers over these last two years, they may be reluctant to hand out pink slips so long as they think that a recovery is not far away. NPR's Scott Horsley, thanks as always. You're welcome. As Russia loses ground on the battlefield in Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin made a major announcement that raises the stakes in the conflict. Russia will mobilize 300,000 additional troops, and Russia appears poised to annex the Ukrainian territory that it currently controls. For the latest on this, we're joined by NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow and Greg Myrie here in Washington. Good to have you both here. Hi, Ari. Good to be with you. Charles, why would Putin call up 300,000 more troops at this point in the war? Well, he announced this as a partial mobilization, uh, deploying what he said would only be additional reservists with military experience to fight in Ukraine. As to why now, this comes amid a Ukrainian counteroffensive that's been quite effective and growing criticism from nationalists at home uh, that Russia was in danger of losing largely because it wasn't using its full fighting force. Uh, Yet Putin today suggested that Russia's recent problems were a result of a conflict that had shifted. You know, instead of fighting just Ukraine, Russia was also now taking on what he called the collective West. So here Putin says Washington, London and Brussels are openly urging Kiev to bring the fight to Russian territory and defeat Moscow by any means. In other words, this is now an existential fight, one that requires more resources. And what has the reaction been from leaders in Kiev and Washington, Greg? Well, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has expressed his opposition, as you would expect, but in a sort of ho-hum, world-weary kind of way. It's like, this is what we expect from the Russians. Zelensky says Putin needs an army of millions because so many Russian troops are running away from the fight, his tone was very much mocking rather than outrage. And President Biden spoke at the United Nations General Assembly and placed the blame for the war and everything that's happening squarely on Putin. He said this was a war chosen by one man. He says Russia is trying to extinguish Ukraine's right to exist and Russia is committing war crimes. He also said Putin was making overt nuclear threats against Europe. This was a reference to Putin remark that Russia has various means of destruction. Uh, Putin has issued veiled nuclear warnings previously. He claims this time it's not a bluff. Charles, as you told us yesterday, Russia and its allies in Ukraine are planning referendums on joining Russia, and they are scheduled to start this Friday. How could they possibly do something so complicated on such short notice in a war zone? Well, you know, Russia has clearly been wanting to do this for some time. Uh, They dispatched, you know, a key Kremlin advisor to the Donbass in East Ukraine to oversee integration efforts with Russia in the past few months. Uh, They formed proxy governments to adopt Russian laws. Uh, But they kept pushing back the actual referendum vote uh, because the moment wasn't right. You know, the fighting was still going on. So really, you could say they're just speeding up the timeline here, uh, given several factors. First of all, this counteroffensive by Ukraine we've mentioned, but also because the Kremlin sees this as a way to change perceptions at home. You know, integration of these territories uh, moves the conflict from an offensive campaign, the one where Russia is occupying Ukraine, to a defensive campaign, one where Russia is defending its homeland. You know, and as Greg noted, Putin made clear in no uncertain terms that when it came to that, uh, all options were on the table. 
And Ari, we should note, Russia annexed Crimea after seizing that Ukrainian territory in 2014. So Ukraine has been through this before. It completely rejects the notion of annexation, and it has not been recognized internationally. And now, today, we're talking about four separate regions in Ukraine, two in the east, two in the south. And in two of these places, Russia controls only parts of them. So Russia may actually be trying to annex territory that it doesn't even control. To turn back to the fighting, Charles, how long would it likely take Russia to mobilize these 300,000 troops, equip them and get them to the front lines in Ukraine? You know, mobilization in theory starts immediately, but there's also not a lot of faith that this mobilization will remain as partial as Putin claimed today. Uh, Alexander Baunov, a senior Russian fellow at the Carnegie Institute for International Peace, says Putin has essentially written an open ticket for his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu. Minister Shoigu is saying that he needs 300,000 people, uh, then 100,000 more and 100,000 more. So it's not a partial mobilization. It's gradual mobilization. And to that effect, there were protests primarily by university students in dozens of cities across the country. In Moscow, there were several hundred arrests, over a thousand and counting nationwide, despite threats of criminal penalties. Uh, Meanwhile, the parliament today approved laws criminalizing desertion and voluntary surrender by Russian troops with up to 10 years in prison. So recruiting this new force may not be easy, just as getting them into the field is no small task. Uh, They still have to get these fresh forces trained in place and maintain them. Uh, Let's not forget this is all unfolding as the weather turns towards winter here. Greg, some of Russia's actions here seem to be motivated by Ukraine's military success. Do you expect the Russian mobilization to change the calculus? Well, 300,000 Russian troops is a lot. It's, in fact, larger than the original Russian invasion force back in February, which is less than 200,000. But many of the military analysts here in the U.S. that are weighing in say this won't provide a quick solution to Russia's ongoing military problems. Russia's best troops have had a very tough fight in Ukraine for these past seven months, and these reservists aren't their best troops. And and manpower is just one issue. The Russian military leadership has made a lot of miscalculations. Russia has lost a lot of equipment. It appears to be low on uh, supplies and ammunition. None of these issues will be solved simply by having fresh troops. That is NPR's Greg Myrie here in Washington and Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you both. My pleasure. Thank you. When Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico, Yarimar Bonilla's family was left in the dark. You know, as all Puerto Ricans say, they're okay, but, you know, okay means that they don't have any water, they don't have any power, and they're not sure when it's going to come back. Many on the island are feeling a sense of deja vu. Hurricane Maria was just five years ago, and in addition to killing at least 3,000 people, it also wreaked havoc on the power grid. On today's Consider This podcast, we'll look at how the unfinished recovery from Maria left Puerto Ricans vulnerable to Hurricane Fiona. (music) 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Federal Reserve delivered another rate hike today, and Wall Street responded by heading downward. Today, the Dow lost nearly one and three quarters percent. That's 522 points. It ended the day at 30,184. S&P and Nasdaq also lost about one and three quarters percent. S&P closed at 37.90. The Nasdaq finished the day at 11,220. The Jay Peak Ski Resort in Vermont has a new owner. A federal judge has approved the $76 million purchase at auction by Pacific Group Resorts. The company also owns Ragged Mountain in New Hampshire. Jay Peak went up for auction after its former owner and former president were sentenced to prison for financial fraud. Business news coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum. With power and perspective, early photography in China. Rare 19th century photographs, alongside paintings, prints, and decorative arts, reveal the entwined history of art, politics, and power. Opens Saturday. Tickets at PEM.org. Banks saw opportunity during COVID and permanently shut down 230 branches in Massachusetts. You can find that story and much more at WBUR.org. Enjoy the last full day of summer. Tomorrow is the autumnal equinox, the first day of fall. It officially begins just past 9 tomorrow night. So the forecast for tonight hardly feels summery. Should be down around 62 degrees with partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow fall begins really wet. Look for clouds soaking rains during the day. High temperatures in the mid-70s. And then sunshine for Friday, temperatures about 60 degrees. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Federal authorities have made a record number of arrests at the U.S.-Mexico border this fiscal year, more than two million. And there's still one more month to account for. One of the places migrants are arriving is Rio Grande City in South Texas. It's a small town of fewer than 15,000 people. And Joel Villarreal is the mayor. Welcome. Thank you. What are you seeing around your city these days? The numbers have... have, uh... You're looking at hundreds of them, uh, meaning individuals coming, but that's something that's been going on for decades. We've actually had, in 1986, we had 1.7 million apprehensions. In 2000, 1.6. Back in 2019, 1.7. But this year, yes, it's going to reach over 2.1, probably 2.2 million apprehensions here at the U.S.-Mexico border. You say there have been crossings into your town in large numbers for decades. Tell us what's tangibly different. Well, what's different is, of course, the the coverage. In fact, for many years, for many decades, you really would not hear too much in reference to the numbers. Oh, so you just mean the news media is covering it more than we used to. Correct. It's interesting for me to hear you say that even though the country is paying a lot more attention to the border, even though the number of apprehensions are up, the experience of people living in Rio Grande City 
is pretty much what it's always been. That's correct. In fact, our experiences here, uh, we've been dealing with this for decades. And, and that's one of the things that uh, we must understand. Now, for many years, we have uh, dealt with this without the federal financial resources that are necessary to better manage the flow of migrants. And I do say this, no mayor or governor in America should have to bear the burden for a broken immigration system without the federal financial resources that are necessary to manage these flows. What do you think about Texas Governor Greg Abbott's decision to put migrants on buses and send them north? Uh, it's been very controversial in some states. Is that something that your town welcomes? The controversy is not so much the busing. The issue, though, is when we don't have the coordination. For example, the city of El Paso is busing individuals, but they're doing it in a way that's conducive to the betterment of the operation, meaning they are coordinating it with the NGOs at the receiving end, and that is what's critical. And that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind. As long as we do that, then the busing at this point is effective because it's providing these individuals the opportunity to get to the destinations where they're headed And again, many times they already have family members that are going to help them start their lives and and so on while they're waiting for their claims for protection. And what about the charter flight to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts? I mean, is that a little different from the busing? Well, here's a question for America relative to that. Do we Americans deem this immigrant population as so undesirable that we can justifiably transport immigrants anywhere and everywhere across America without their consent. So yes, I have an issue when you have individuals that, that don't have consent. And that's the critical point is, are, is this a political stunt? Is it a disingenuous intent? Or is it really addressing the needs of these individuals at the same time? Now, granted, this is where this whole concept lies is we have immigration, and we have border security, two concepts of which are not mutually exclusive. They can coexist. And unfortunately, we have not been able to manage this balance between immigration and border security. Now, that lies in Congress. So let me ask, you know, Congress has failed to act on immigration for so long, for decades. If there is not a major reform package, as there seems unlikely to be, Are there smaller steps that would help communities like yours right now? Yes. Meet the federal financial resources that are necessary to better manage the flow of migrants. Just money, you're saying. Send us money. That's bottom line, because if not, then uh, it puts a burden on small communities and having to foot the bill on on our local taxpayers dime for an issue that's a national issue. That's Joel Villarreal, mayor of Rio Grande City in Texas. Thank you very much. Thank you. Russia today has announced the mobilization of up to 300,000 reservists for its war in Ukraine. But as NPR's Yulian Haida reports from Kyiv, many are unfazed by the news and are instead going to McDonald's, which has just reopened in the Ukrainian capital. 
Every Ukrainian of a certain age remembers when the first McDonald's opened in the Soviet Union in 1990. Even though a meal there cost half a day's salary, hundreds lined up for the American burgers, as shown by this news report from the time. I thought they wanted to launch nuclear rockets at us, but they gave us McDonald's and peace instead, says a boy clutching a Coca-Cola. Like blue jeans and chewing gum, the arrival of McDonald's signaled the end of the Soviet Union. It seemed like the newly independent countries left in its wake, Russia and Ukraine especially, might just embrace democracy in Western culture. But Russia took a different path, becoming increasingly authoritarian under President Vladimir Putin. As for Ukraine, it was caught between Russia and the West. Then this winter, Russia invaded. Like the Soviet Union, the Kremlin is once again isolated, and Western sanctions imposed because of the war meant McDonald's pulled out of the country. <laughs> I hope McDonald's never goes back to Russia. They would deserve it, says Yaroslav Holovatenko, as he clutches his own quarter pounder in a cold and rainy park. He's holding that burger really tight because McDonald's also left Ukraine when the war began, though he doesn't blame foreign companies for not wanting to put their employees at risk in a war zone. On Tuesday, three branches reopened for delivery in Kyiv, a sign that the danger seems to have passed here. Dozens of people are camping out in front of the restaurants, having delivery drivers carry out their orders for them. A gaggle of boys have been refreshing their iPhones for a chance to get three Big Mac combo meals, a quarter pounder, four McFlurries, worth about 30 bucks or about two days' pay in Ukraine. Some waited up to three hours for their food. I asked Kolovatenko if he feels the same way people did when McDonald's first opened in these parts three decades ago. We weren't even alive then, he says, but we all know about it, and this must be what it felt like. He and his friends schlep all the way across town to the branches that have reopened. It's a reminder of life before the war and what they could still lose if Russia wins. Julian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. We've all heard about the great resignation, lots of people quitting their jobs or making career changes. In fact, millions of Americans have left their jobs in the last couple of years, and a recent NPR Marist poll shows where they've gone. Hear more tomorrow on All Things Considered. Just ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, Montana Republicans passed a law to make it harder to change one's gender on a birth certificate. The word sex actually means something. It's binary, either male or female, and it's encoded in our DNA. The term gender means nothing. 
But the courts have blocked a law and another that concerns who can play in college sports. That's still to come on WBUR. Tonight, the Red Sox go for another win over the Reds in Cincinnati. 6.40 game time. Connor Siebold called up from the Woo Sox will pitch for Boston. Chase Anderson for the Reds. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight with showers by tomorrow morning, down around 62 overnight. Showers keep on coming tomorrow. Some drenching rains, in fact. Gusty winds, highs in the low 70s once again. Should be sunny and dry on Friday. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dance for World Community's annual outdoor festival this Saturday, noon to 8. Free performances, classes, and dance party with live music in Harvard Square. Ballettheater.org. When Donald Trump became president, a group of women dedicated themselves to challenging his administration in the courts. These women attorneys just didn't sit around workshopping, you know, just kind of helicoptered in and saved democracy. And I think that we forget how much we won. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, Lady Justice versus Trumpism. That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. New York's attorney general is suing former President Donald Trump and his company alleging business fraud involving some of Trump's most prized assets, including properties in Manhattan, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. Attorney General Letitia James says the charges come after a three-year civil investigation. We uncovered more than 200 examples of false and misleading asset valuations that were used on his statements. The pattern of fraud and deception that was used by Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization for their own financial benefit is astounding. The suit also names Trump's eldest children, Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr. James says Trump and the organization misrepresented the value of his assets more than 200 times over 10 years. The New York AG is asking a judge to issue $250 million in civil penalties and has referred the case to federal prosecutors for possible criminal charges. Many Ukrainians are shrugging off the news that Russian President Vladimir Putin plans to escalate his war against their country. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from the northeast of Ukraine. Here in downtown Kharkiv, in front of an Orthodox church with its gold dome shattered from an explosion, people are expressing defiance about Russian President Vladimir Putin's announcement that he plans to mobilize hundreds of thousands of additional soldiers to come to fight against Ukraine. Denis Tyshenko says, we've survived this period of the war since February 24th. We have confidence in the armed forces of Ukraine. And he says he doesn't think new Russian conscripts, even 300,000 of them, will be enough to conquer Ukraine. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv. Stocks finished sharply lower on Wall Street after the Fed stepped up its fight against inflation, raising interest rates today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. National Grid Electricity customers can expect to pay significantly higher bills this winter. The company is asking state regulators for a 64% increase over last year's rates. That amounts to an increase of about $114 a month on the typical bill. National Grid's Helen Burt says the company has launched a website for people to learn about ways to save money. To learn about no-cost home energy audits and energy efficiency upgrades, that can help manage consumption and lower their bill. It'll also help customers set up balanced billing 
And we also want to help seek financial assistance if needed. National Grid's gas customers can expect bills to be about $50 more a month this winter. Burt says the war in Ukraine is largely to blame for driving up energy prices. The rate increases have gone to effect November 1st. Eversource has also filed a request to raise natural gas rates between 25 and 38 percent. It has not yet filed a new electric rate request. An abortion rights lawyer who President Biden nominated to serve on the federal appeals court in Boston appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee today. Julie Rickleman testified that if she's confirmed by the Senate, she would follow the summer Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade. Rickleman represented Mississippi's only abortion clinic in that case that challenged a state abortion ban. She says the ruling is now law of the land and the rule of law requires lower courts to follow Supreme Court precedent. State transportation officials are calling the Orange Line shutdown a success. The entire line was shut down for one month, so MBTA officials could get five years' worth of work done in 30 days. Jamie Tesler is the state's transportation secretary. He said today he's happy with how operations went during the closure. Particularly the highway division really stepped in with uh, great traffic analysis, with the installation and operation infrastructure so that we could do our best to optimize the shuttle bus diversion routes uh, through multiple uh, cities and towns. Some of the changes that were put in place in Boston during the Orange Line shutdown will become permanent. They include bus lanes around Copley Square and added bike lanes in Boston's South End. Boston is tripling the number of municipal employees focused on trees. There will now be 16 instead of five. It's never to expand tree coverage in the city. Here's WBUR's Martha Biebinger. Tree coverage varies widely in Boston. That means residents of Chinatown and East Boston are at greater risk for heat-related illnesses and flooding than are those in West Roxbury and Jamaica Plain. Mayor Michelle Wu says an urban forest plan out today and more staff will correct that tree gap. In the city of Boston, this is our best green technology to fight heat, to make us resilient, and to make our communities beautiful. In addition to the new jobs, Boston expects to spend $6 million this fiscal year on more trees, maintenance, and tree data for individual neighborhoods. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. In the forecast, thickening clouds tonight. Still a few clear patches around overnight. Lows about 62. Could have a real drenching tomorrow for the waning hours of summertime. Strong winds, the rumble of thunder in the mid-70s. Then for Friday, should be sunny and dry. Temperatures about 60. It is right now in the Boston area, 65 degrees at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. When Hurricane Fiona stormed across Puerto Rico this week, it dumped a torrent of rain that flooded the island's rivers. The flooding caused catastrophic damage in many communities, and it killed at least one person. As NPR's Adrian Florido reports, the flooding was made worse by a history of poor planning and development, choices that underestimated the complexity and power of Puerto Rico's watershed. It was a horrific scene that ricocheted across Puerto Rican media on Monday, 
a family trapped in their two-story home as a raging river engulfed it. Neighbors launched a small motorboat to try to reach the family. On the banks, at least three men gripped a rope attached to the boat so it wouldn't be swept away. The house is in the mountain town of Calle. The river is the La Plata River, which has its headwaters high up in Puerto Rico's central mountains. It winds for more than 40 miles down the mountains before reaching the Atlantic Ocean on the island's northern coast, passing through towns and villages all along the way. For most of the year, the branches and tributaries of this and other rivers all across the island are places Puerto Ricans go to relax, to take a dip in tucked away watering holes and escape the tropical humidity. But when a large storm comes, Puerto Rico's rivers suddenly become one of the biggest threats to life and infrastructure on the island. During Fiona this week, gorging rivers swept away houses and bridges. At least two people drowned, including a man whose car was swept away by the Rio La Plata. Some towns got more rain than they've ever gotten from a single storm, more than 30 inches. Pero adicional, hay, hay otras razones por la cual este evento de inundación riverina fue tan catastrófico. But Maritza Barreto, a geologist and planner at the University of Puerto Rico, says there are reasons other than the massive rainfall that Fiona caused such catastrophic damage. Tenemos, por ejemplo, construcciones en zonas de los valles aluviales de estos ríos que se supone que sean zonas donde el río naturalmente fluya, ¿verdad? Para, para All across Puerto Rico, she says, homes, suburbs, and shopping centers have been built right up against rivers large and small and in the alluvial valleys that are part of the watershed even if they almost never fill with water. During the construction boom of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, island officials often turned a blind eye to the risks. But Puerto Rico also has many informal communities. Roughly half of the island's housing stock is technically unpermitted construction. Desgraciadamente, por la, el no conocimiento del impacto ¿verdad? que tiene ese tipo de construcción en áreas de, de alto riesgo... Unfortunately, Barreto says, people often don't even realize they're building their homes in floodable areas. This week, many people found out. En muchas áreas que nunca habían tenido inundaciones... At a briefing, Puerto Rico Governor Pedro Pierluisi said many communities flooded that had never flooded before. The island's public works director, Aileen Vélez Vega, said that after Fiona, the government is collecting data to update its flood zone maps. Marita Barreto, the University of Puerto Rico professor, says that keeping communities safe from flooding has to be a continual process here, because Puerto Rico's terrain is 75% mountains and is constantly changing. Five years ago, Hurricane Maria uprooted so many trees and caused so many landslides that some rivers shifted their course. Government efforts to mitigate the risk of future flood damage, she says, has to account for the accumulative effect that development, erosion, and ever larger storms have on the way that Puerto Rico's water flows. Adrian Florido, NPR News, San Juan. Republican leaders in Montana are seething as state courts are blocking two attempts to restrict the rights of transgender people. Montana Public Radio's Shaley Rager reports conservatives are complaining that the courts are politically biased. After 16 years of Democratic governors vetoing their legislative priorities, Republicans in Montana finally saw one of their own elected governor in 2020. 
The following year, they pursued an agenda they knew the new governor would support, including making it harder to change one's gender on a birth certificate. Jeff Lasloffy with the Montana Family Foundation testified in support. The word sex actually means something. It's binary, either male or female, and it's encoded in our DNA. The term gender means nothing. The National Institutes of Health define gender as socially constructed roles that influence how people perceive themselves. And the American Medical Association and American Psychological Association say gender-affirming care is best for the physical and mental health of trans people. Republicans also passed a ban on trans women and girls competing in interscholastic sports. Governor Greg Gianforte signed both bills. Democratic Senator Diane Sands called the 2021 legislative session one of the most challenging for LGBTQ advocates in decades. She's the first openly gay lawmaker in Montana and has served for 17 years. For the legislature to continue to make their life a living hell through these bills that are denying them equal protection of the law and for young students to say that you can't even participate in athletics is extremely painful. Two people sued the state over the birth certificate law. The state health department used to allow people to change their gender by filling out a form. The new law requires people to prove in court that they've had gender-affirming surgery. Plaintiff Amelia Marquez, a 27-year-old trans woman from Billings, spoke at a Pride event in Helena. So let's do it. Let's continue to fight for our rights, Montana. And I will make sure that I continue to fight as hard as you continue to fight for everybody else. Marquez and another unnamed plaintiff argue the law violates their state constitutional rights to privacy and equal protection. In May, a judge temporarily blocked the law while the case is hashed out in court. But the state health department didn't return to their previous practice, instead enacting a new rule that effectively banned trans people from changing their birth certificates. Judge Michael Moses, who's presiding over the case, was not happy at a recent hearing after the rule was put in place. If we are simply going to circumvent orders of the court where the court finds preliminarily a violation of the Constitution, that's not what justice is all about. The health department now says it intends to comply, but disagrees with the order. The same week, another state court partially struck down the other law, which bans trans Montanans from competing in women's school sports. The judge found it violates the state university system's right to regulate higher education, but the law still stands for K-12 trans student-athletes. The losses have increased tension between Montana Republicans and the state's judiciary. State Senator Greg Hertz called the order blocking the birth certificate rule judicial activism. He said judges aligning themselves with Democrats continues to be a constant theme. Republicans dominate Montana's legislature and executive branch and consistently point to the judicial branch as a roadblock to their priorities. It looks as if they may not be following all their rules and they're not following state statutes. So do we let them continue to do that? Montana's next legislative session begins in January. Proposals to further regulate the judiciary are expected. For NPR News, I'm Shaley Rager in Helena, Montana. You're listening to All Things Considered. 
Nearly half of the American workforce is now working remotely at least one full day a week. And that is obviously a huge change from the way things were before the pandemic began. New research shows that many employees now consider remote work to be non-negotiable for their continued employment. And Planet Money reporter Greg Rosalski has been looking into all of this. He's here now. Hi, Greg. Hey, Juana. All right, Greg. So what does the research show about how employees are thinking about remote work right now? So the first thing the research finds is kind of obvious. Workers, for the most part, love remote work. They don't have to commute or, like, shower. <laughs> it tends to give them more flexibility. I spoke with this economist at Stanford University. His name is Nicholas Bloom. He and his team recently surveyed tens of thousands of workers from around the world, and they found that over a quarter of those currently working remotely will quit their jobs if their bosses force them back into the office full-time. Okay, I am perhaps not surprised that workers love this, but that is only half of the equation. There's also, of course, employers to consider. And clearly a lot of companies out there are dealing with this big question of whether they should insist that workers return to the office. What data should they be looking at? Well, obviously, they should consider that over a quarter of their workers might quit if they do that. But more than that, Bloom, the Stanford economist, recently ran this experiment with more than 1,600 employees at a tech firm called Trip.com. They randomly divided these employees into two groups. One group could work from home part-time. The other had to be in the office full-time. The researchers found the remote workers were actually more productive. The coders who could work remotely wrote 8% more lines of code than the coders forced to work in the office. The marketers and the finance types, meanwhile, they saw better qualitative assessments. Even more, the group that was allowed to work remotely had a 35% lower quit rate than those forced to work in the office. Okay, and that, of course, is just one workplace in just one sector, the tax sector. But do the results here have any carryover to other industries? I mean, not necessarily. I mean, the optimal work policy will vary according to the industry, the type of job, the need for in-person interaction or collaboration and so forth. But there's growing evidence that, generally speaking, allowing remote work has more benefits than costs, not just for employees, but for companies themselves. Okay, so the research suggests that remote work is sort of a win-win for both employers and employees. But what about the economy? So there's this interesting effect that all this is having on inflation, which obviously is something Americans are concerned about right now. Bloom did this other study recently. He and his colleagues surveyed over 500 American companies, and they found that almost 40% of them are using remote work as this tool to keep workers happy and lower their company's labor costs. Remote workers apparently love remote work so much that they're willing to get paid less to have it. And because rising wages is one factor in rising prices, Bloom and his team find that remote work is likely helping to reduce inflation. That's NPR's Greg Rosalski. Greg, thank you. Thank you. And Greg, by the way, writes the Planet Money newsletter, and you should check it out. It's at npr.org slash planetmoneynewsletter, and that's all one word. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered. In the Philippines, supporters of a former senator in jail say she was framed for speaking out against the then-president. That story is coming up. 66 degrees in Boston. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Speakeasy Stage with Heroes of the Fourth Turning, the acclaimed drama about the complexities of faith and politics. Through October 8th, speakeasystage.com. In the forecast, look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Should have showers by morning down around 62 degrees. Showers keep on coming tomorrow. Some drenching rains, gusty winds, the rumble of thunder. High temperatures in the low 70s again. Should be sunny and dry on Friday with temperatures down around 60 degrees. 66 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549. I'm On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR's fall fundraiser begins tomorrow morning at 7 with just an hour of fundraising for the entire day. We call it a power hour. Every monthly gift will be doubled until 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. We need 500 contributors for this power hour to be a success. Help us off to a strong start. Give monthly at WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As we look at the state of democracy around the world, let's turn to the Philippines. A human rights defender there has been jailed for years, raising fears that the country's democratic guardrails have corroded. Supporters of the jailed former senator say she was framed in retaliation for exposing unlawful killings during the War on Drugs initiative of then-President Rodrigo Duterte. NPR's Julie McCarthy reports. Lila de Lima, the country's justice secretary from 2010 to 2015, turned 63 in late August, her sixth consecutive birthday marked in jail. Prosecutors, initially under former President Duterte, alleged that as justice chief, de Lima conspired to receive payments from imprisoned drug lords, and in return she tolerated their lucrative drug trade in the country's central prison. Her supporters are having none of it. Two dozen well-wishers greeted DeLima August 26th as she left one of the two trial courts hearing the criminal cases against her, cases that have been shaken by recanting witnesses. As DeLima headed back to jail, supporters shouted, free her, fake evidence, and happy birthday. When asked her birthday wish, the one-time senator brightly replied, Always freedom and vindication. Soon. But if anything, DeLima's case demonstrates the glacial pace of justice in the Philippines. After nearly six years, there is no conviction or exoneration. Graft charges still loom. DeLima defense attorney Dino De Leon says the government manufactured cases against DeLima using coerced testimony from convicted felons with an axe to grind. He says eight years ago, DeLima actually raided the country's maximum security prison as justice secretary, dismantling the luxurious accommodations of drug baron inmates. By the time she was elected to the Senate in 2016, opponents were accusing DeLima of coddling drug lords. A charge she refuted on the floor of the Senate. This is not only an attack against me, but against any senator who dares to be outspoken. She then pivoted to abuses of Duterte's national war on drugs as it was getting underway. We cannot wage the war against drugs with blood. We will only be trading drug addiction with another more malevolent kind of addiction. 
And this is the compulsion for more killing, killings that have now included even the innocent. The Philippines DEA says 6,252 Filipinos have been killed in police narcotics operations since 2016. Rights groups say the number is at least four times that. De Lima first crossed swords with Duterte when she investigated then-Mayor Duterte for extrajudicial killings in Davao City, where alleged death squads targeted petty criminals and drug addicts. When De Lima launched a Senate investigation against Duterte's nationwide drug war in 2016, colleagues sidelined her. Duterte quipped at the time, DeLima wanted to implicate me, but it is she who will go to jail if her alleged links to the drug trade are actually proven. If those connections are true, she will rot in jail. She will rot in jail. It's no bail. Drug offenses are non-bailable in the Philippines. DeLima penned a handwritten statement for NPR delivered through her staff. She says she has lost her freedom because of vengeance, demonstrating, she says, how democracy can be dismantled in a bat of an eye. She continues, My case is a clear example of Duterte's willingness to commit a crime or to allow a crime to be committed, she says, in order to silence a critic. The office of the president, she writes, was being treated like a monarchical institution. It only shows how effective, how powerful government propaganda can be. That's Socorro Reyes, member of the Free Lila Committee and De Lima's professor at university. Reyes says the Philippines reflects the unseemly tactics of a global assault on liberal democratic values. The compliant House of Representatives even threatened to release a sex video, ostensibly featuring the senator. It's the height of well, what you can do to a woman. So what we did is we started posting, I am the woman in the video. I am the woman in the sex video and I'm ready to appear. The House had no video show. Reyes says DeLima spent nearly her entire Senate term isolated in jail. No internet, cell phone, or computer. Few visitors besides the stray cats she's befriended. She still managed to handwrite influential legislation supporting the poor and elderly, says colleague Senator Coco Pimentel. Though DeLima lost re-election in May, I ask Pimentel, does she have something to teach the Senate, the Congress, elected officials? Of course, a lot. You know that you have to have principles in life and it's not easy. You will be tested and sometimes you will be persecuted for uh, these principles. Political lecturer Arjun Aguirre of Ateneo de Manila University insists that Duterte carried out a political vendetta against Dilema. But Aguirre says she's an illustration of how Duterte targeted critics selectively, so Filipinos would not perceive a threat to their democracy overall. They still think that we are in a democratic society, and, and Rodrigo Roa Duterte is you know, trying his best to save us from an oligarchic rule. Legal observers say closing in on six years, the Dilema affair may look more like arbitrary detention. Defense lawyer De Leon says one case has been dismissed. Two key witnesses retracted their stories in a second case. And in a third case, the evidence relies mainly on statements from convicted felons. De Leon says the defense might be able to show the government used the power of the state to invent allegations. And actually using 
it's machinery just to persecute an innocent person. But that has to be proven. A group of U.S. senators wants the new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., to write what they call the injustices of his predecessor and clear dilemma of any wrongdoing. Massachusetts Democrat Senator Ed Markey recently led a delegation to Camp Crame inside the National Police Headquarters to visit the woman he calls a prisoner of conscience. Before, Duterte barred U.S. lawmakers from seeing Delima, and so Markey said the visit offered a sign of progress. And while releasing Delima could burnish the country's battered human rights image, Aguirre cautions that freeing her may not be on Manila's agenda. They will do more calculations, and my understanding there is that they will stick to the status quo. They will not release Senator Laila Delima soon soon. The presidential palace told NPR that it would leave the case to the trial court. The Justice Department said it would rely on the sound discretion of the court and did not respond to queries about its plans. Julie McCarthy, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is 90.9 WBUR. In the news, Logan Express shuttle bus service will return to the Back Bay next month for the first time in more than two years. Massport said today will relaunch the service between the airport and Back Bay October 3rd. It was halted in March 2020 because of the pandemic and a lack of ridership. Massport says it intended to bring back the shuttle sooner, but a driver shortage prevented that. This is WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself. New York's Attorney General has sued former President Trump and his company alleging business fraud. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, September 21st. This is All Things Considered. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. That's just ahead. Also, energy as a weapon of war in Ukraine. We'll hear from the country's energy minister on the Russian shelling of Ukrainian power and heating plants as temperatures start to drop in the region. 42-year-old St. Louis Cardinals slugger Albert Pujols is poised to do something few in baseball have done, hit 700 home runs. He's hit a dozen dingers this month alone. And an urban planner and artist is on a quest to make everyone feel welcome in Boston parks. One challenge, the city's history with racism. Because of that history of pain, there's an opportunity to create new relationships with these outdoor spaces. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. New York's attorney general is suing former President Donald Trump, his three eldest children, and his family business empire. NPR's Ilya Meritz reports the state alleges a years-long fraud built around asset valuations. New York Attorney General Letitia James says Trump lied about the value of the properties he's famous for. Mar-a-Lago, the former Trump Hotel in Washington, his own triplex apartment in New York City, and many more, to get bigger loans, better insurance policies, and to lower his taxes. More than 200 alleged misrepresentations made to financial institutions over a decade. Trump's goal, James says, was to enrich himself. And to cheat this system, thereby cheating all of us. She's asking a judge to bar Trump and his three eldest children from serving as corporate officers in New York and to repay at least $250 million obtained, she says, through fraud. On Twitter, Donald Trump Jr., who's also named in the suit, wrote, The expletive dem witch hunt continues. Ilya Meritz, NPR News. Two U.S. citizens who were captured by Russian forces while fighting in Ukraine are on their way home. The two Americans were among 10 foreign fighters released in a prisoner exchange. Embarrassed Jason Bobian is more from Kharkiv. The two men from Alabama went missing in June while fighting alongside Ukrainian forces in eastern Ukraine. According to a statement released by their families, they are safely in the custody of the U.S. Embassy in Saudi Arabia. According to Saudi officials, their release was negotiated by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The Americans, who both served in the U.S. military, are believed to be the first two U.S. citizens captured in the conflict. A U.K. official confirms that five British nationals were part of the POW exchange, including one who had been sentenced to death by authorities in the Russian-backed separatist Donetsk People's Republic. Jason Bobian, NPR News. Kharkiv, Ukraine. The Federal Reserve has ordered another big increase in borrowing costs. NPR Scott Horsley reports the central bank raised interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point today as it tries to curb inflation. By making it more expensive to use a credit card, buy a car, even ultimately get a mortgage, the central bank hopes to tamp down demand, which has been outpacing supply and pushing prices higher. The Fed has now raised interest rates five times since March, and policymakers signaled that additional rate hikes are likely. The effects of the Fed's moves are already visible in the housing market, which is particularly sensitive to borrowing costs. The average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage now tops 6 percent. Sales of existing homes have fallen in each of the last seven months, which can also reduce demand for things like furniture and appliances. The average sales price of existing homes dropped in both July and August. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Stocks lost ground after the latest Fed interest rate move. The Dow dropped 522 points today. The Nasdaq was down 204 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Workers at a Starbucks on Commonwealth Avenue near Boston University say they will return to work after what they say is the longest strike in the company's history. WBUR's Vanessa Ochevillo has more. Unionized workers ended their picket yesterday after a roughly two-month strike. 
They say the company's district manager has agreed to address their staffing concerns and seek a new store manager. Workers allege the manager is anti-union. Striker Nora Rossi says the union will take that verbal promise on good faith. We trust that he will be doing this for us and work with us, and we intend to be very vigilant about that. We're, we're pretty serious about it, as <laughs> the number of days in the strike probably indicates. A Starbucks spokesperson says the company did not negotiate with the employees on their return, and work conditions at the store have not changed. She says the company anticipates future collective bargaining meetings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillo. Puerto Rico is beginning to clean up after Hurricane Fiona devastated much of the island, and members of the Puerto Rican community in Massachusetts are rallying to help. WBUR's Sydney Bowles has more. State Senator Adam Gomez tells Radio Boston he's speaking regularly with people in Puerto Rico, including elected officials. He points out that Fiona hit five years to the day after Hurricane Maria devastated the island in 2017. Bridges that were rebuilt and infrastructure that was rebuilt after Maria has been put in a position that we, that it's gone again. Gomez is the first Puerto Rican elected to the Massachusetts Senate. He says the diaspora is ready to help, even as community members process this latest trauma. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. A Cambridge-based science advisory group says Russia's war against Ukraine could be pushing the world closer to nuclear catastrophe. Russian President Vladimir Putin said this week he will use everything at his disposal to protect Russian territory. Tara Drozdenko is with the Union of Concerned Scientists. She says Putin's renewed threats to use nuclear weapons are consistent with his rhetoric since the start of the war. Look, if there were a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia that escalated to full scale, it would be a civilization-ending event. And so I think all of us need to be concerned about this. Jostenko says the war in Ukraine is the most significant event related to nuclear weapons since the fall of the Soviet Union. The fight over lobster fishing rules in Maine intended to protect endangered right whales has entered a new stage. The Lobstermen's Association in Maine said this week it's appealing a federal judge's decision that upholds limits on where they can catch lobsters and how they can do it. Scientists say right whales get caught in lobster fishing gear. Lobstermen call the regulations scientifically flawed and draconian. Should be partly to mostly cloudy overnight tonight. Some gusty winds. The chance of showers right about 62 for a low. Tomorrow, lots of wet. Showers and thunderstorms, gusty winds, temperatures in the mid-70s, then turning sunny on Friday. It's 6.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Jones Day, an integrated partnership collaboratively providing legal services for more than a century. 42 offices, five continents, serving clients as one firm worldwide. Learn more at jonesday.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. New York Attorney General Letitia James is alleging in a civil suit that Donald Trump and three of his adult children engaged in a decade's worth of fraud, inflating Trump's net worth by billions of dollars. Pattern of fraud and deception that was used by Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization for their own financial benefit is astounding. Inflating the values of assets by whatever means necessary to increase Mr. Trump's purported net worth. James is seeking to permanently hobble Trump's ability to do business in New York, and she is asking for $250 million in damages. Joining us today to discuss that legal action is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Hi, Andrea. Hey, Juana. Great talking to you. You too. Okay. So what is James saying that um, Donald Trump and his adult children did? 
So the civil complaint, which runs to 222 pages, goes to the very heart of what makes Donald Trump Donald Trump. It contains over 200 examples of alleged fraud over the course of what the AG pointedly says is at least a decade. What's so striking about this action is that it describes persistent and repeated acts of fraud by the entire organization's top, top executives, all directed by Donald Trump. And it says he and his co-defendants misled his accountants, his bankers, his insurance companies, and cheated the public that he would repeatedly take official appraisals and then just make up a higher value. It says he did this with his commercial real estate, his residential real estate, his golf courses, dozens of different entities. Okay, let's dig a little deeper here. Can you give us an example of exactly how this worked? Yeah, so, so here are two. According to the AG, Donald Trump overstated the square footage of his own apartment at Trump Tower in New York by a factor of three. The Trump Organization valued it at $327 million, at the time the priciest apartment in Manhattan. And the AG heard testimony from Trump's former CFO that he knew it was off by a factor of $200 million. So here's a man who built this building, obviously Trump knows how big his penthouse is, but triples the size and uses that information to get favorable treatment from banks. Mm. Or take Mar-a-Lago. There are restrictions on how that property can be developed, which limit how much it's worth. The AG says $75 million. Trump says $739 million. Okay, big difference there. You know, it seems like we speak often on this show about Trump's legal troubles. So help us put this into context. How big of a deal is this lawsuit? Big. So it's not a criminal case, no one can go to jail. But it's the culmination of a three-year investigation and the devastating detail and persistence of the scheme outlined in the complaint alleges what is essentially a business model of fraud. Trump's business is currently a defendant in a criminal case in Manhattan. Trump has been sued literally thousands of times, including twice by the New York Attorney General, once for fraud at his foundation, once for fraud at his so-called university, and he's had to pay tens of millions of dollars in penalties to New York. But those cases compared to this one were about branches of his organization. This case is about the trunk of the tree. The AG is seeking a huge amount of money, $250 million, and other remedies that would all but prevent Donald Trump and Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr. from doing business in New York. And we should just note here that Trump's lawyer says this case is without merit. Trump and his family are calling it, quote, a witch hunt. So, Andrea, what sort of defense do we expect here? So we won't know until we see Trump's legal papers. And as we've seen in the Mar-a-Lago classified document investigation, there is daylight between what Trump says at rallies or on Truth Social and what his lawyers say in court. But we do know this. New York State Supreme Court Judge Arthur N. Gorin has repeatedly rejected the witch hunt defense in rulings on this very investigation. Letitia James, a Democrat, did run for office saying she would investigate Trump, but the judge said her statements and political views are irrelevant. What matters are the facts and the law. Okay, so um, this, this lawsuit has just been filed today. So tell us what happens next. So if passed this prologue, the Trumps will draw it out. The case could settle, but it could go to trial. The AG has also referred the matter to the Justice Department and the IRS for possible criminal investigation. And the Manhattan DA, which chose not to indict Trump himself at a criminal juncture this year, says his criminal case is ongoing. All right, we're going to keep watching that. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Keep following that for us. Thank you so much. Will do. Thanks, Juana.
Winter in Ukraine is freezing, and as summer turns to fall, Russian forces have targeted Ukraine's energy supply. The largest nuclear power plant in Ukraine has been under Russian occupation for months, and right now it isn't generating electricity for safety reasons. Russian shelling recently hit power and heating plants in several parts of Ukraine, including a missile attack near a different nuclear power plant. And many of Ukraine's coal mines in the east are under Russian control. All of this is in the portfolio of Ukraine's energy minister. German Galushchenko is in Pittsburgh right now for a clean energy conference, and that's where we have reached him. Minister Galushchenko, welcome to All Things Considered. Hello, sir. To begin with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the International Atomic Energy Agency has visited. The UN has issued its report. Yet last night, there was another attack on the plant. What's the current situation there? Yeah, you are right. This night it was another attack on on uh, the Parisian NPP. The Russian destroyed the line which supply electricity for use, and it makes to the result that the diesel generator start working for the six unit. And due to our staff, they managed to reconnect the six unit to, to the other units, and now the situation looks more safe more safe for now. But long term, is Ukraine going to be able to produce nuclear energy to get you through the winter? Uh, Of course, we are raising this issue of demilitarization of the nuclear station, especially we are talking about Zaporizhia, because until the Russian soldiers are on on this side, that is a great danger. And if Russia does not stop shelling, what is Ukraine doing to plan for what could be a very cold winter? Um, of course, we are looking for the possibilities to substitute this electricity in the system, but we have another three nuclear stations uh, in our system, and uh, they could provide electricity at the necessary level. By the way, two days ago, the Russians shell uh, another one station, which is South Ukrainian NPP. And uh, of course, we want to see the uh, our armies going ahead now, especially on the south, and uh, that is just help us to settle the issue of returning back to Ukraine, these appreciated Given that there are these ongoing attacks on and near energy facilities, do you think Russia is actively trying to attack your energy grid and, and, and freeze people out? Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's what we see. And uh, uh, on September 11, it was massive attack on, on energy infrastructure. So they destroyed uh, a number of facilities and thousands of Ukrainians were cut from supply of electricity. And it looks like uh, that is a strategy. I mean, but that is, of course, not something uh, similar to the war action. That's more close to the terrorism. The last six months have left many people with no glass in their windows. Windows have been bombed out all across Ukraine. And so as the temperatures drop below freezing and energy supplies are limited, how can you prevent people from dying of the cold? Of course, we, we will do uh, everything to provide the necessary uh, electricity from the point of view of electricity and from the point of view of gas supply. Uh, the one, the, the most dangerous issue and the most risky issue for us, of course, that is the shellings. In case of the shellings, so we need to repair quickly and when they shell massively, of course, that takes time. If the Zaporizhia power plant is offline, if coal mines in the east are in control of Russia, how do you have the energy stockpiles to get through the winter? 
in fact, so we know how to substitute in this situation the Zaporizhia NPP uh, in our energy. So the mines which we lost in the east, they are not critical for uh, production of, of uh, the coal. And so today we, we understand how to manage to go through the winter. What is your biggest worry right now about the security of Ukraine's energy grid? Uh, the, one of the biggest worries, of course, the nuclear station. And, and that is, uh, I mean, that is not now only the question of uh, uh, possibility of the station to supply electricity to Ukrainian energy system. That is more now the situation when, what I mentioned, that the, when the diesel start operation. So this is more the question of uh, nuclear safety. And, and uh, in case, uh, I mean, all these uh, Russian crazy actions around the Zaporizhia could, could uh, have the results of a nuclear accident. And that's the situation when that would be not only a Ukrainian problem. Mm. As I mentioned, you are at a clean energy conference in Pittsburgh with everything else that is raining down upon Ukraine right now. Tell me about your decision to take time to come to the United States and focus on renewable energy. Uh, that's that's a very important issue to uh, to raise. I mean, that uh, all this uh, dependence, uh, let's say, to to Russian energy, especially that's not only the, the case of Ukraine, that is the, the issue for Europe. And of course, there's Russia aim to make Europe addicted to, to its energy. And uh, the, the best solution to get rid of Russians on the energy sector is to uh, to move to renewables, and and that is the solution. German Galushchenko is Ukraine's Minister of Energy, speaking with us from Pittsburgh today. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a St. Louis slugger eyes history and a Boston based artist and urban planner eyes ways to make the city's parks more welcoming. Federal Reserve today delivered another rate hike, and Wall Street responded by heading downward. The Dow lost nearly one and three quarters percent, 522 points, to end the day at 30,184. S&P and Nasdaq also lost about one and three quarters percent. S&P closed at 37.90. The Nasdaq finished at 11,220. It's 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt.com with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at prompt.com. And Huntington Theatre, presenting Sing Street, a new musical based on the hit indie film. Huntington Calderwood BCA, now through October 9th, huntingtontheatre.org.
A Cambridge-based life sciences company is moving forward with plans for a gene-editing treatment for a type of high cholesterol. Verve Therapeutics announced today the United Kingdom has approved a clinical trial for the treatment. It already has approval in New Zealand. Verve says its goal is to create a single-course treatment. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. Enjoy the last full day of summertime. Tomorrow is the autumnal equinox, the first day of fall. Officially, it begins at just past 9 tomorrow night. Partly cloudy skies tonight. Showers by tomorrow morning down around 62. Showers keep on coming tomorrow, not feeling at all like summer. Some drenching rain, gusty winds. Highs in the low 70s once again. Sunshine, though, for Friday. This is WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering, the host of Radio Boston. WBUR's fall fundraiser begins tomorrow morning at 7, with just an hour of fundraising for the entire day. We call it the Power Hour. To make it work, we need 500 members by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And best of all, every monthly contribution gets doubled until the end of the Power Hour. Why wait? Get in on the match now at WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Home run milestones are the talk of Major League Baseball as the regular season winds down, and the St. Louis Cardinals' Albert Pujols is too shy of 700 career home runs. He has another crack at that tonight in San Diego, where last night NPR's Tom Goldman joined a watch party. One again on Albert Pujols' bad side, mentioned to him he's chasing 700 career home runs. A reporter did that yesterday, pregame, in the St. Louis Cardinals dugout. I'm not chasing anything, buddy. That's something that you guys are playing with. I I just never chase any numbers, and I accomplished so much. So 22 years later, I definitely don't want to chase anything. Actually, Pujols uses that odious word when it comes to chasing another World Series title. He helped St. Louis win championships in 2006 and 11, and he wants another before he retires after this season and ends a two-decade-plus career that will easily land him in the Hall of Fame. That ending always was going to be a fond but fairly sedate affair with teams on the road honoring Pujols. The San Diego Padres did last night with a very San Diego gift for him and fellow retiree-to-be, St. Louis catcher Yadier Molina. The Padres are presenting these two legends with surfboards. But Pujols has turned an easygoing retirement tour into something electric, thanks to a home run barrage that ignited a somewhat sleepy final season. He's hit a dozen since last month, and it's prompted reporters to call it a power surge, which, again, he doesn't like. My power search. Okay, I guess I didn't have any power. I had to search for some, so did it took this long? I don't know why, but for me it was just try to really repeat the same swing that I've been doing for 21 years in my career. Pujols does acknowledge his swing speed is better now than years past. He's also been feasting on left-handed pitchers. According to MLB.com, lefties have given up nine of Pujols' last 12 homers. 
Last night, the Padres offered up only right-handed pitchers. They held Pujols to two singles and this walk that drew boos from the homer-hungry fans. Alas, there'd be no lucky ones in the bleachers catching a Pujols home run. But high above the first baseline, 36-year-old San Diegan Chris Woldridge found himself perfectly positioned to snag the closest thing to history last night, an Albert Pujols foul ball. I just saw it pop up and it looked like it was coming right at me and it was just so perfect. I didn't have to move or anything. And Woldridge said he hadn't been to a major league game in maybe 15 years. He'll remember this one and a chance souvenir from a 42-year-old player finishing with a bang. It's impressive. I, I mean, you know, you're not supposed to be, you know, hitting as many home runs and playing at that caliber at that age. It's just really, it's really special. There was a time not too long ago when a home run barrage by a 42-year-old would raise questions, not unreasonable questions to ask in San Diego, where Padres star Fernando Tatis Jr. currently is serving a lengthy suspension after testing positive for a performance-enhancing drug. There have been no credible allegations against Pujols, nor has he had the outlier performances. He never hit 50 home runs in a season. His major league career began in 2001, during the so-called steroid era, but he's played most of his baseball since the game's become a standard bearer in the fight against sports doping. Travis Tigert is the CEO of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. The light switch went on in baseball and they put in a policy that protects clean athletes. Unencumbered by suspicion, San Diego fans cheered all four of Pujols' at-bats last night. Many stood with cell phones recording hoped-for history. It didn't happen, but fans on the road, and certainly in St. Louis, will keep turning out to watch one of baseball's great late-season chases, or whatever Albert Pujols wants us to call it. Tom Goldman, NPR News, San Diego. Boston is home to more than 200 city parks. They make up a public resource everyone can share. But not everyone feels at home in the city's green spaces. In our series featuring local artists of color, we introduce you to an urban planner and artist who wants everyone to feel welcome in Boston's parks. The idea is to host public programs inspired by the writer James Baldwin. WBUR's Amelia Mason has more. I meet Anita Morrison-Matra at the Rose Kennedy Greenway in downtown Boston on an intensely sunny summer day. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this freaking beautiful? We're standing next to a pristine lawn bordered by lush shrubbery. A wide stone path cuts through it. Even with all of the background sounds um, that you often find in major cities, it is a place of refuge and healing. Morrison-Matra believes in the power of green spaces to heal. But she says not everyone feels that these public spaces are really for them. If someone was to come out on any general day, they would think that this may just be for tourists or this may just be for a certain population of people, but it's not. It's for everyone. This year, Morrison Matra was awarded a grant from the New England Foundation for the Arts to develop an event series to take place in Boston's parks, inspired by the 20th century author and civil rights activist James Baldwin. It's called Baldwin in the Park. 
which will be a series of theatrical performances and opportunities for us to engage with Baldwin's work. Why Baldwin? Morrison Matra points to the writer's own search for refuge, which in 1948 led him to flee the racism of New York City for the freer, more bohemian Paris. Having to leave where you are, you know, the place that you've loved, Harlem, and go to Europe is something that has felt really close to me, like just having to move and leave in order to be who you are fully. Morrison Matra notes what she calls the challenging and painful histories that black and brown people have had throughout Boston, and points out that there are locations in the city where enslaved people were sold. Because of that history of pain, there's an opportunity to create new relationships with these outdoor spaces, um, ones that can be nourishing and nurturing and and can be filling and loving. In October, Morrison Matcher will present a kind of preview of her Baldwin in the Park series on the Greenway. She says the interactive event will use dance and movement to help participants connect with outdoor spaces wherever they find themselves. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. Amelia's story is part of our week-long series, The Makers, that highlights Boston-area artists of color. Tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll meet podcaster Harley Takagi Kaner. To see photos and videos of all the artists we featured, visit WBUR.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, the Red Sox go for another win over the Reds in Cincinnati. Connor Siebold called up from the Woo Sox will pitch for Boston. Chase Anderson for the Reds. First pitch is 10 minutes away. This is 90.9 WBUR, 68 degrees now at 6.30. And Marketplace is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose. Spanish and Mediterranean small plates with a modern twist. Dinner Tuesday through Sunday, lunch and brunch on weekends. Private parties welcome. And Arts Emerson's Drum Folk. They took away the drums, but they could not stop the beat. Drum Folk is a high-energy, thrilling, percussive celebration inspired by the Stono Rebellion of 1739. In Boston, October 5th through 16th at the Cutler Majestic Theater. Tickets at artsemerson.org.